attention, please. This is a piece of art. His Kryptonian biological makeup is enhanced by Earth's yellow sun. <laughs> Dr. Doom wears body to conceal his own mangled form. Worst episode ever. Why? Who shot first? Yeah. Who gives a shit? It's what's called super nerd nitpicking over something that's not really that important. Welcome back to Trennis Magnus Punches Reality, presented by Two True Freaks. I'm your host, Magnus, and this is a podcast about nothing. Actually, no. It's all about comics, movies, and TV shows. For those of you who don't know, my show follows an eight-episode schedule. What happens is I usually do six episodes about whatever subject just interests me at that moment. After that... The seventh episode is Chris Honeywell and me talking about one of the DC slash Paradox Press line of big books. And then finally, the eighth episode is always dedicated to Smallville as I continue my retrospective of the whole series. Wash, rinse, repeat, right? Now, I've been known to use those six episodes for a mini-series dedicated to a single topic, theme, idea, character, or just whatever else. The plan, at least right now, is that after my incredibly fucking huge 100th episode, I intend to use most of 2015 and 2016 making my way through several six-episode miniseries. It works out to nearly a full year of six-episode miniseries, in fact, but that's all in the future. For right now, though, before things get really crazy, I want to just enjoy the time that I have right now. You know? I want to talk about comics that I probably won't have time to talk about for what looks like almost a year. Now, considering how long it's going to be before I can talk about just plain old comics outside of a particular topic or character or creator or miniseries or whatever is going on, to me at least, it makes sense to use the time I've got to talk about comics that mostly have nothing to do with each other. Because of that, the comics you're going to hear me go through in this batch of six episodes mostly have nothing to do with one another apart from the fact that I just feel like talking about them right now. Now... As I've said before, I kind of like Spider-Man, but I don't consider myself to be any special authority on the character. I just don't really know a whole lot about Spider-Man. I haven't read tons and tons of Spider-Man comics. Now, I started making amends for that, at least somewhat, back in that Batman-Spider-Man series that I did a while back. But the thing is, having done that series it kind of gave me a craving for more Spider-Man comics. So that's what I'm talking about right now. And let's face it, Spider-Man's had some pretty historic issues. A lot of important shit happened to Spider-Man in the first... uh, 15 or so years after his first appearance. I haven't talked a whole lot about those comics, so... now's a good time to start changing that, right? One of the most famous... An important Spider-Man comics is Amazing Spider-Man number 39. Green Goblin basically gets the brilliant idea of figuring out Spider-Man's secret identity just by following him home one day. And after that, all hell breaks loose. It's a pretty important story, and it sets up even more important stories later on. And we'll be getting into them later, but for right now... I want to talk about Amazing Spider-Man, number 39, 
the title of which is How Green Was My Goblin. Writer is Smilin' Stan Lee. Penciler is Jazzy John Romita. Inker is Mighty Mickey DeMeo. Letterer is Adorable Artie's Semek. The story opens with the sinister Green Goblin gleefully planning his next attack on his archenemy Spider-Man. It's been some time since his last altercation with the web-slinger, and thus he feels Spider-Man will be taken unaware. He's also modified his existing weapons and created a few new ones, all concocted to bring his latest plan to fruition. The goblins teamed himself up with various villains in the past, and each time, the Alliance has proven to be his downfall. This time, he knows if he's to succeed, he must do it solo. His new plan is a diabolical one indeed. Find out what Spider-Man's real identity is and then reveal it to the world after he publicly defeats him. Oblivious to the impending doom the Goblin has in store for him, Pete makes his way to Dr. Bromwell's office to check up on a nasty head cold that he's developing. The doctor gives him a prescription and then takes the teen aside to inform him that his Aunt May is rather weak at the moment and any shock might prove fatal for her. This bit of news brings Peter down to earth and he becomes depressed. Making his way to school, pretty girl Gwen Stacy is determined to have the guys befriend Peter, but with his mind on Aunt May's condition, he rudely rebuffs them. In the front of the school, Harry Osborne's having an argument with his domineering businessman father, Norman. Peter comes up to Harry, and despite their uh, prior differences, they manage to have a heartfelt talk and relieve some of the depression that each of them is feeling. After school ends, Peter becomes Spider-Man and takes to the sky, swinging around town to clear his head after a full day at college. He happens upon a holdup occurring in broad daylight on top of a building. He can't believe how unprofessional the thieves are to pull a robbery right in plain view, but what he doesn't know is that the robbery's been staged by the Green Goblin in an attempt to lure Spider-Man out and begin phase one of his plan. Spidey has the boys on the run when one of them throws a gas bomb at him. The bomb explodes, but doesn't seem to have any adverse effect on him, as far as he can tell, and so that seems to be that, at least for the moment. What he doesn't realize, though, is that the bomb is an invention of the Green Goblins that will suppress Peter's spider sense. And so it is that the Green Goblin manages to follow Spider-Man after the battle without Pete having the slightest idea that he's being watched. The Goblin shadows Peter down to an abandoned alley where the adult Spider-Man removes his costume and changes back into his Peter Parker identity. Now the Goblin knows what Spider-Man looks like surprised and impressed by how young he is. Following him on to the Daily Bugle, he overhears someone calling out to Peter. Now the Goblin knows Spider-Man's name. The Goblin is beside himself. The plan is working perfectly. Peter leaves the Daily Bugle with a light heart. Although J. Jonah Jameson is skimped as usual on payment for Peter's terrific photographs, it's still money in his hand that can go to Aunt May's treatment, and he hurriedly makes his way home to take care of her. As he steps up to the lawn of the Parker's Forest Hills home, however, he's interrupted by the voice of a most unexpected visitor. The Green Goblin has arrived. As he hears the Goblin call out Peter Parker, he realizes the Goblin has somehow found out his secret identity. But before he can worry about that, he realizes there's a more urgent issue at hand. He has to get the Green Goblin away from home before he can get any closer to the house where his ailing Aunt May is resting. Shocked by the confrontation, Pete's first instinct is to web up the Goblin, but as he prepares to shoot the webbing, he realizes he's not wearing his costume. With no chance to change into into Spider-Man, Pete has no choice but to tackle the Green Goblin using only his agility and bare hands, and hopefully he can lure the villain away from the house. The Goblin suffocates Peter with exhaust from his back glider and, and has Pete on his toes dodging the cracking beams from his fingertips and the sharp bat blades, but it's just too much for Peter to dodge forever, and he gets taken out by an asphyxiation grenade. The Goblin ties Peter up and flies the beaten teen out to the waterfront docks where he has a secret hideout set up within one of the huge warehouses. 
Securing Peter to a chair, the goblin begins preparing his diabolical plans for Peter's fate. And while struggling to get free, the goblin reveals the final shocker of the evening. He unmasks himself in front of Peter, and is revealed to be none other than Harry's father, Norman Osborn. To be continued. So, what did I think? Honestly, I think the art in this issue is just a little bit uneven. I mean, yeah, there are a bunch of fun action scenes of Spider-Man duking it out with the Green Goblin, and believe me, we're going to talk about those, but some pages just seem kind of flat and boring to me. Now, I realize this is John Romita's first work on Spider-Man, but I, sti- I still felt like certain aspects of this really could have been handled better. Take page one, for example. It's basically the Green Goblin hanging around his hideout. And it's really nothing more than just a few wide shots of the Goblin arming himself and tinkering with his glider and some other stuff. But there's really nothing dynamic about it. Make sense? I mean, call me old-fashioned, but I think a comic book page, especially a page one, needs to have more energy going for it than this does. It gets a little better in the next few pages, though, when Peter's hanging around the doctor's office. And things definitely pick up on page seven when Spider-Man beats the fertilizer out of Green Goblin's decoy thugs. What's interesting, though, is that they give Spider-Man a real fight. Their little showdown on the roof of that building starts on the seventh page, and Spider-Man doesn't even get gassed until page 10. People, that's a lot of fighting, and it's not over yet. Pages 16 through 19 are all Peter versus the Green Goblin. And it's just, those things actually worked really well for me. Now, from a writing standpoint, I gotta say, Stan Lee brings home the goods once again. Stan seemed to really enjoy those scenes in the Daily Bugle with Peter and Jonah haggling over pictures and money and all that shit. Stan knew which side his bread was buttered on, and he never forgets to throw in little zingers for all of the characters. Apparently, there was a pretty big difference of opinion between Stan and Steve Ditko. Ditko wanted some nameless, faceless nobody to be the Green Goblin. To him, it makes more sense that in a city as big as New York, Spider-Man really shouldn't have any idea who the Green Goblin is. Stan, though, wanted the Goblin to be someone that Peter knew. And honestly, I have to come down on Stan's side here. Offhand... I don't think Peter had any kind of relationship with the rest of his rogues gallery and their civilian lives, except maybe Kurt Connors. The rest of his enemies were all the nameless, faceless strangers that Steve Ditko wanted. And so I think Stan had the right idea about giving Peter a personal connection to the Green Goblin. Now, this shit gets abused all the time in movies and TV shows and stuff, because for some reason, it's just impossible for a lot of writers and filmmakers to get their heads around the idea that these people are supposed to be strangers to one another, which is to say the, the rest of Spider-Man's rogues gallery. And so what, end up, what usually ends up happening is that Peter's arch enemy of insert movie here or insert TV show here, there's a better than average chance it's a member of the Osborne family, or else a, an interpersonal relationship with one of his enemies in their civilian lives is invented and then grafted onto the movie. Anyway, no sense getting sidetracked by any of that stuff here. I'm, what I'm saying is that if Stan and Steve had a running gun battle over the Green Goblin's true identity, I'm glad that it's Stan that won out in the end. Now, sort of related here... One of the revelations for me in this issue is that Peter and Harry aren't exactly best friends here. The movies and cartoon shows and shit always show Peter and Harry as best friends forever, but there's really not much of that going on in this story. They're both going through a lot of bullshit and they can barely tolerate each other's existence, 
even on a good day. Amazing Spider-Man number 39, this is not a good day. Anyway, another interesting thing, and this part wasn't a total surprise, is how Gwen Stacy had the hots for Peter pretty much right away. I mean, like, I already knew that she was interested in Peter early on, but this was a pretty uh, consistent element of the story, and I guess what I'm saying here is it just It didn't just come out of nowhere, is what I'm saying. Anyway, so all in all, it's a fun little issue of pretty historic magnitude. Plus, it's probably been reprinted a few billion times, so even if you're too poor to afford the original comic, and trust me, I'm right there with you, you can still get a reprint. And for probably not all that much money, either. So yeah, on with the show. Amazing Spider-Man number 40, entitled Spidey Saves the Day. Writer is Stan Lee. Penciler is John Romita. Inker is Mickey DeMeo. Letterer is Sam Rosen. At the start of the issue, Spidey's tied up and has been unmasked by the Green Goblin as seen last time. The Green Goblin's also revealed his identity, taking off his mask to show that he is Norman Osborn, father of Harry Osborn, who's one of Peter's uh, classmates. Peter says to Norman that he should have guessed that he was the Green Goblin since he has a son like Harry. The Green Goblin tells him not to remind him of Harry because he thinks Norman is a simple businessman and and Harry can never learn the truth. He reminds Peter that that's a reason why he must die, so that he can never tell anyone who the Green Goblin truly is. Peter thinks that he's just as worried about Aunt May learning his secret identity as Norman is of Harry learning his. The Green Goblin taunts Peter by saying that his efforts to break the steel coils he's tied up with are futile, whilst Peter thinks that's fine by him if the Green Goblin teases him since it gives him more time to break the bonds. The Green Goblin says it's time for for him to kill Spidey, but Spidey thinks that he he needs to stall him. He sarcastically mentions that Harry's going to be pleased to have a murderer for a father, making the Goblin stop and tell Spidey that he'll tell him why he became the Green Goblin so that he'll understand. In a flashback, the Green Goblin explains that Harry's mother passed away when he was a baby and that he tried to bring up Harry as best he could. He's tried to be a good father, but he often had to work late, so Harry was alone, quite a lot. As Norman rambles on and on, Peter realizes that he's forgotten that he, Peter, is even there. Norman goes on about how he even sent his partner, Mendel Strom, to jail so that he wouldn't slow down Norman's work. Peter's managed to get one finger free by now, but he doesn't have enough, lever- enough leverage to free himself all the way. Continuing his story, Norman tells Sp- Spidey that one night, he'd found some notes of Strom's in his desk which contained new formulas. He decided to check them out and see if they were worth anything. However, Harry burst in at that moment to tell Norman that he had to go to parents' night at a school. Norman told him not to worry about it and that he might consider going. But instead, all night, Norman worked on the formulas. Near dawn, the solution started to turn green and froth. A second later, the formula exploded. For weeks after, Norman was in the hospital while the best doctors in the state worked on him, trying to save his life. However, he had brain damage which couldn't be fixed. Not even Harry suspected that the accident had made Norman smarter than before, and Norman started treating him more meanly. Norman's brain-damaged mind decided that, since he's smart and has various scientific devices in his company, that he could become the greatest costume criminal of all time. After months and months of working, he finished making a uh, mask and decided to make the rest of his costume his favorite color, green. And so, the Green Goblin was born. The Green Goblin had chosen to fight Spider-Man since he knew that the Underworld would respect anyone who could defeat him. Spidey realizes that he's getting nowhere with escaping from those steel coils and wonders how much longer he can keep the Green Goblin talking. The Goblin puts on his mask and prepares to, to kill Spidey. Peter thinks that he's not afraid to die, but he is worried since he'll never be able to see Betty Brant or explain to Aunt May anything about his secret. Meanwhile, back in Forest Hills... Anna Watson's come over since Aunt May's worried about Peter, who hasn't come home yet. 
Anna tries to calm Aunt May by saying that Mary Jane uh, also comes home from school late, but Aunt May can't help but worry about Peter anyway. At that point, Anna Watson reminds Aunt May that Peter could be at the Daily Bugle, and so she calls up to see where Peter is. At the Bugle, Jonah yells uh, down the phone that he doesn't know where Peter is, and then hangs up. Back at Aunt May's house, Aunt May starts worrying more, so Anna Watson decides that she needs a sedative, and then goes to call Dr. Bromwell. Over at a railway, railway station in the Midwest, Betty's, uh, Betty Brant's preparing to leave and head back to New York. Betty overhears a radio presenter mention Spider-Man, and she wonders if J. Jonah Jameson will give her her old job back. As the train conductor calls out for everyone to get on board, Betty heads onto it and wonders what the future has in store for her. Meanwhile, back at the Green Goblin's hideout, Peter's looking away from the Green Goblin, who's annoyed that Peter's going to rob him of the satisfaction of killing him. Peter mocks him by saying that he beat him every time they fought, and the Goblin shows him, as a retort, the Goblin shows him mental pictures of their previous fights using a retroscope helmet. First of all, he shows their very first fight, where he hired the, enf- the Enforcers. Peter points out how easily he beat the, enforce, uh, the Enforcers, but the Green Goblin says that he himself was not beaten. That lesson taught him that no one can fight for the Green Goblin, and he shouldn't rely on other people. Next, he shows Peter their second fight and claims that he was saved by the appearance of the Human Torch. However, as he only wanted to fight uh, Spider-Man, the Goblin abandoned the fight and left Spider-Man behind. In their next fight, the Goblin explains that he made another mistake by teaming up with Lucky Lobo and his gang, and they ended up being more of a hindrance than a help. In the penultimate fight, the Green Goblin had completely defeated Spider-Man. However, since he wanted to fight Spider-Man by himself and not with the help of the Crime Master, he left Spider-Man behind again and started preparing to fight him in their final battle. Spider-Man's finally gotten one hand free, and so he thinks he can be free in just, a mil- in just a moment. The Green Goblin realizes that Spider-Man's going to be free in a second anyway, and so he unshackles uh, Spider-Man and claims that there's no reason in beating a helpless prisoner to death. He tells him that he wants to fight him, as he always has in the past, and forces him to put on his Spider-Man outfit. However, the Goblin throws pumpkin bombs at Spider-Man since he... Uh, since he's not going to make it, he's not willing to make it, a hand-to-hand fight. Spider-Man flings a bomb back at the Goblin, but the Goblin jumps onto his glider since he'll be more maneuverable on it. Pretending to be clumsy, Spidey awkwardly swings at the Goblin, who then grows careless and flies close enough to Spider-Man to be knocked off the Goblin glider. Spidey approaches the seemingly unconscious Goblin, unsure of what to do since he knows that he's Spider-Man. At that moment, though, the Goblin jumps up and throws an electric cable at Spidey, who only narrowly avoids it. Spidey keeps fighting the Goblin until he manages to knock him into some chemicals which have electric wires in them. Unsure what to do, Spidey finds out that the, that the Green Goblin has, has at this point lost his memory and gets him out of the building, telling the fire department that Norm, Norman Osborn helped him defeat the Green Goblin. He then heads home to see Aunt May, who stops worrying and starts looking after him, believing that he's still sick. The end. So, what did I think? I gotta say, this is a pretty meaty read. A lot of shit gets revealed here, and even though I didn't follow several bits of it because I'm such a Spider-Man noob, I still kind of had a lot of fun with this issue. I mean, who the hell's Mendelstrom? I have no fucking idea, but... The truth about Strom's association with Osborne gets revealed here. So that's good news, I guess. But on top of that, the true origins of the, of the Green Goblin are laid out here, and it's pretty twisted stuff. Basically, Osborne became the Goblin out of pure ego. He believed that he was better, stronger, and smarter than anybody else, so why not help himself to whatever he wants? It's not about the fact that he's already rich, powerful, and successful as Norman Osborn. Nope. For him, it's about using his power to take everything from other people just to prove he can. 
just to prove he's better. And think about that for just a minute. I mean, that's some pretty arrogant shit. But here's the thing. It's not entirely his fault. He's brain damaged. He's got one hell of a mental disorder going. Ultimately, Spider-Man's able to exploit that and submerge Osborne's split personality, but the lead-up to that moment is pretty big stuff. John Romita was at his best when he was drawing Spider-Man beat the piss out of somebody, and so, if you ask me, the battle with the Green Goblin is the high point of this issue, and I think that's one of the reasons that it lasts for as long as it does. And I think that on top of all of that, it kind of needed to be that long anyway, because there was just so much standing around and talking and shit in this issue. The fight works out to something like five pages. The other 15 pages of this story are mostly filled up with characters just talking to each other. And that's fine, but in the Silver Age, you needed to keep the action going. And so I think it was pretty ballsy of Stan to put things on pause for so long and just let the story breathe. This does present some kind of strange discontinuity, though. The conflict here is clearly between Spider-Man and the Green Goblin. Spider-Man and the Green Goblin. Ever since he came back from the dead, though, Osborne's had a mad-on for Peter specifically. And that really shouldn't be possible based on Osborne's motives in this story. Now, yes, 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 I realize there's no point in applying logic to the Clone Saga. I'm just saying it is a problem, or it became a problem later on in the 90s. Anyway, other stuff. John Romita was only just now beginning to settle into the Amazing Spider-Man title, but this issue feels a lot smoother and more natural than number 39 did. The top of page two shows a gradual close-up of, Nor- uh, of a Norman Osborn. At this point, he's lost in his own insanity, and he's getting crazier and crazier by the second. And Romita sells that. Osborne looks more and more unhinged as the issue progresses, and it's just really powerful stuff. So yeah, fun comics here. Big, important, historic stuff goes on in these issues, and if you ask me, I think they're worth checking out. And because, you know, they've really earned their reputation. Plus, it's the beginning of John Romita's run on Spider-Man. How can you not like that? Anyway, time for a break. Be right back after these messages. You know, a dear friend once said to me, it's a lot of fun when everyone's a dork of some sort or another. And I thought not only are those words to live by, it's an idea worth celebrating. So that's why I created Pop Culture Affidavit, a podcast that is about, well, let's just say it's completely random. (laughs) One episode might be about movies, the next might be about comics, the next might be about music. All that matters is that I'm giving you a recap and critique of stuff I enjoy and you're having as much fun as I am or at least I hope. So join me, Tom Panneries, for Pop Culture Affidavit, the sworn testimony of a dork. You can find a new episode at least once a month at popcultureaffidavit.podomatic.com and notes, essays, and other stuff once a week at popcultureaffidavit.com. Together from the disparate reaches of geekdom, here in this restaurant booth are the most powerful forces of geek ever assembled. Ryan, the toy geek. Scott, 
Pratt, the award-winning radio host. Jeff Scott's minion. And Ron, just Ron. Dedicated to truth, justice, and geek for all mankind. It's Dinner for Geeks. Dinner for Geeks proudly crusades at twotruefreaks.com. Yeah, 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 play it. Come on. Play it loud. Play it loud. And now, it's time to sit back and enjoy the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Broadcast. Illogic. Foolish emotions. A constant irritant. And freak! Two! On the circus, <laughs> right next to the dog-faced boy. True. I have come here to chew bubble gum and kick ass, and I'm all out of bubble gum. Oh shit! It's a super prize package worth. $9,388! Money. This isn't the biggest bag over the head. Punch in the face I ever got. God damn it! Ow! Go away, Peyton! And now, <laughs> together by live simulation via the internet, your hosts, Scott Gardner. He killed a police officer for Christ's sake! You yeah, goddamn lucky he didn't kill him. And Chris Honeywell. You are physically repulsive, intellectually retarded, vulgar, insensitive, selfish, stupid. You have no taste, a lousy sense of humor, and you smell. Oh. So you're looking at me? Yeah, because she thought you were some kind of freak. Now come on, let's go. She likes me, eh? No way. Shut up, you freak! You're gonna get a shoe. I say shut up! It's a man! TwoTrueFreaks.com. Okay, I'm back now and continuing my discussion about comics I just feel like talking about right now. And obviously, this time out, that includes a lot of Spider-Man. Now, in the last segment, I talked all about Amazing Spider-Man number 39 and number 40. Apart from the fact that I'd never really read those comics before, I knew those issues would relate directly to the comics I really wanted to talk about this time around, which I shall be talking about in this segment. You see, when I was coming up, Mary Jane was pretty much universally acknowledged as Spider-Man's one true love. I mean, yeah, the dude had had a lot of girlfriends over the years, but for whatever reason, Mary Jane was the... That was the one that he ultimately ended up with. Time was, nobody ever even argued about it. Mary Jane was Spider-Man's Lois Lane. Simple as that. But something changed. Damned if I know what, and damned if I know when. But something changed after a while. I swear to think that it was around the time of the Clone Saga and the 90s that people, and I mean fans here, but it was right around then that people started second-guessing Mary Jane as Spider-Man's one true love. I mean, is Mary Jane his true love? Or maybe the better way to put it is, should she be his true love? Like I say, damned if I know, exactly when it happened, but the time came when people started looking back at Gwen Stacy. It started to become the consensus that Gwen is the one that got away. Mary Jane? Eh, she's just a consolation prize. She's somebody who can keep P uh, Peter warm at night while his heart beats now and forever for Gwen. Now, if I had a dog in the race at all, it was for Mary Jane, and only because 
I happened to come in on Spider-Man comics when Peter and MJ had pretty much settled in together as a married couple, but over time, and it took a while, but over time, MJ really started pissing me off. It started with Kirsten Dunst in the first Spider-Man film. I was never crazy about her in the role, and maybe that put some stank on MJ for me. I don't know. But another thing is that when I went back and reread some 90s Spider-Man, I came to realize that Mary Jane was just a pill. She was, she was flighty, impulsive, fickle, passive-aggressive, and totally self-absorbed. It got to the point where I started to think Mary Jane must be one hell of a good lay because she's really not bringing much else to the table in terms of stability or, or even likability most of the time, you know? So, I guess what I'm saying here is that I had more than enough incentive to look back at Gwen and wonder that maybe she was the one for Peter after all. And I have to admit, they were pretty good together. That made me want to check out Amazing Spider-Man number 121 and 122. You know, the ones where Gwen Stacy died. These issues have been legend for years now. They've been riffed upon in several Spider-Man movies and cartoon shows. And in fact, I think even the Ultimate Universe Spider-Man has riffed on these issues a couple of times before. For it to be this influential you'd think this storyline would have to be pretty good. And it is, but I'll come back to that later. For right now, though, I better get into the summaries. So first up is Amazing Spider-Man number 121, the title of which is The Night Gwen Stacy Died. Writer is Jerry Conway, penciler is Gil Kane, inkers are John Romita and Tony... No idea how to pronounce this. Tony Mortolaro... Letterer is Artie Samek. Colorist is David Hunt. Editor is Roy Thomas. With Harry Osborne being tended by a doctor for a bad trip on LSD, Peter Parker and his gang are somewhat worse for wear. Spider-Man's just returned from Montreal, and just after he changes out of his costume, he gets accosted by Norman Osborne, whose Green Goblin flashbacks are leaving him in a really fucking bad mood. Osborne warns Peter not to come near Harry, then proceeds to kick the, Peter and the rest of the visitors out with the same message. After they leave, the scene remains at Osborne's apartment, where we learn that his stocks are failing, furthering his stress. A weakened Harry emerges from his bedroom, only to mumble and then collapse. The doctor's called in once again with the grim prognosis of, Only Harry can help Harry now. It's at this moment that Norman Osborne cracks, his goblin memories flooding back. He returns to his secret base, changes into his green goblin costume, hops on his glider, and heads towards Peter's apartment. Gwen Stacy's there waiting for Peter uh, to return while uh, he drops off some photographs uh, from the adventure in Montreal, but before he can get there, the green goblin swoops in through the window and snatches her. When Spider-Man returns to the apartment, he finds only a pumpkin grenade sitting atop Gwen's handbag. And he then comes to the correct uh, conclusion that the Green Goblin's kidnapped her, and so Spider-Man races off to find her. The search, ends at, the search ends at the supposed George Washington Bridge where the Goblin offers a choice. Spidey's life or Gwen's? Spider-Man's hearing none of it, though, and thus starts a battle in which it appears the Goblin's defeated. But as Spider-Man uh, Spider goes to check on Gwen, the Goblin soars back up and tosses, uh, tosses her off the bridge. Spider-Man snags her with a web line and starts bragging to himself about how awesome his spider powers are. However, a small snap sound effect by Gwen's neck says it all, and when Spider-Man finds out that she's dead, he flies into a rage vowing to kill the Green Goblin for what he's done. To be continued. So, what did I think? Honestly, I really dug this issue. Norman Osborn's been under a massive amount of stress lately, and that eventually causes him to snap. 
his amnesia is gone now, and he remembers everything from the comics that I talked about in the last segment. Now understand, Osborn's a total lunatic, so it makes sense that he'd blame Spider-Man for all of this stuff. Before he ever regained his memory, he already blamed Peter, Mary Jane, and Gwen for Harry's problems. So, my argument is that this is really the, the logical extension of all of that stuff. When he, when Norman regains his, uh, all of his memories, all that anger and all that blame shifts now from Peter, Mary Jane, and Gwen all onto Spider-Man now. It never occurs to Norman to blame Harry for taking drugs in the first place. No, no, it has to be Harry's friend's fault. A lot of parents out there use bullshit excuses like this, and because of that, it rings true for me, because I've heard just bullshit like that my entire life. A lot of parents just refuse to accept the possibility that maybe, just maybe, their innocent little darlings aren't so flawless and perfect after all. Of course, Norman has that whole insanity thing working against him right now, so maybe that's got something to do with it. But obviously, the main event here is Spider-Man versus the Green Goblin on the bridge. In fact, their showdown lasts for something like nine of the 20 pages of this, uh, of this story. So obviously, that's nearly half the issue right there. The most obvious thing to come out of their mega battle, though, is the death of Gwen Stacy. Still, it's up for grabs as to when exactly she died. Did the goblin kill her before Spider-Man even arrived on the scene? It's plausible. I mean, she never even says a word the entire time Spider-Man's throwing with the Green Goblin. You'd think she'd at least say something, especially after she finds out that Spider-Man is, in reality, her boyfriend. But... Maybe she's just unconscious. So, did getting kicked off the bridge kill her? People say that you die of cardiac arrest way before you hit the water, so maybe that's what happened in Gwen's case. But if it is, wouldn't, wouldn't she have at least screamed on the way down? I don't know. I've never falling off, fallen off a bridge before, so I have no idea what the hell's normal and what's not. Was it her broken neck? Is that what killed her? Because obviously that'd do the job too. In the end, it's left open to interpretation, which makes it even harder for Spider-Man in a lot of cases, in a lot of ways, because there are just way too many unknowns here for him to ever have a moment's peace again. Now, as to the art, pencils are done by Gil Kane and the inks are done by John Romita. I was 50-50 on the art from Spider-Man number th uh, Amazing Spider-Man number 39 and number 40 from the last segment, but that's not really the case here. And keep in mind, I've never been a big, uh, a big fan of Gil Kane's pencils, but somehow, I don't know how, but frickin' somehow, Romita makes all the difference with his ink work here. The art's powerful and expressive, and when, and when you think about it, guys, this is a pretty fucking dark story when you come down to it, but the art never lets things get too dark. I mean, page one pulls you right into the story. It's Spider-Man looking in through Harry's window while Harry's sacked out in bed and the doctor's monitoring his condition, all the while... Gwen and Mary Jane are offering what little moral support they can under the circumstances. In that moment, we readers are Spider-Man too. We're looking in through Harry's window and watching all this, all this stuff going on. Anyway, I just, I, I just really like the, that page. And I really like page four. It's just pure visual storytelling. The art's powerful enough that you don't need all that many captions to explain what's going on. It's all there on Norman and Peter's faces and the memories that are swirling through Peter's mind about how serious a threat Norman fucking Osborne really is if he ever regains those lost memories. It's just really effective storytelling. I love it. Now, page six carries on that same thing, but except this time it's from Norman's point of view. 
His son could be dying, for all anybody knows, and now Norman's company is suffering too. The strain is really starting to get to Norman. You can, you can see the pressure. It's just building, and it's building, and it's building. And it's just getting worse on every, uh, on every passing panel. It's just really powerful. I love it. All of this, though, really comes to a head on page 9, where Norman finally cracks and starts hallucinating that he sees Spider-Man everywhere. That's the decisive moment where Norman finally succumbs to the Green Goblin once and for all. No more amnesia. No more feeling conflicted about being the Green Goblin. Norman just goes for it here. And this goes right to character. When Norman sets his mind to do something, he does it. He doesn't let anything stand in his way. He just does it. As a matter of fact... You could say that he's just finishing what he started back in Amazing Spider-Man number 39 and 40. In number 39, he decided to finally make his move on Spider-Man and kill him to death and everything. And he ended up with amnesia after that little incident. But right here, he's picking up exactly where he left off. And that works for me in a big bad way. I mean... Norman Osborn's a very direct kind of guy. He doesn't fuck around or mince words or anything. He knows what he wants, and he goes for it. It's good character work here. That's what I'm saying. And the entire time that this is going on, Norman looks completely deranged, and it's just awesome. Anyway, so from here on in, it gets pretty simplistic. Spider-Man swings to the bridge, fights the goblin a little bit, tries to rescue Gwen fails, and then swears vengeance. Still, the art here is just really powerful. You feel every last bit of Osborne's insanity, Peter's fever and his exhaustion, and his desperation. And their fight is, it's manic, and it's powerful, because both Spider-Man and the Goblin know they're both playing for keeps this time. This isn't some little sparring match like they've had in the past. They're both struggling here just to survive. And both of them see the the other as an immediate threat to that. As a matter of fact, that pretty much leads us right into Amazing Spider-Man number uh, 122, entitled The Goblin's Last Stand. Writer is Jerry Conway, penciler is Gil Kane, inkers are John Romita and Tony Mortolaro, I guess is how you pronounce it, letterer is Artie Semek. Colorist is David Hunt, and editor is Roy Thomas. In other words, the same creative team as before. But anyway, the story opens with the Green Goblin gleefully admiring his handiwork as Spider-Man carries the lifeless body of Gwen Stacy. Killed in the last issue by being tossed off the bridge, the Goblin assures the the anguished Spider-Man that he's going to be joining her in death very soon. Peter listens to the boasting of his antagonist as he brings Gwen down from the bridge and lovingly, tenderly lays her down on the riverfront dock before quickly jumping up back into the fight. The Green Goblin flies off, and Spider-Man's about to pursue him when he notices a crowd starting to gather around his beloved Gwen. He leaps down to the dock and orders the police and onlookers to back the hell off. Cradling her in his arms, he realizes that Gwen was chosen as the Goblin's victim precisely because... She was going out with Peter. The specter of Spider-Man has once again crept into his personal life, this time with mortal consequences. Spider-Man then gets lost in a torrent of memories of his time with Gwen and how much they meant to each other. Then the cops try to haul him him in for questioning about Gwen's death, but he beats them all up and swings off to find Norman Osborn. His first stop is at Norman Osborn's townhouse, where he finds a bedridden Harry still fighting off the effects of his latest drug binge. He'd hoped that Harry might have some clues as to where his father might be, but he eventually realizes Harry's in no condition to help even himself. The disoriented Harry begs Peter to stay with him, but the driven youth has more urgent matters to attend to. Namely, killing Harry's father. Next stop is the Daily Bugle, where, as Spider-Man, he asks Robbie Robertson if he can help locate any warehouses or empty buildings that, uh, that Norman Osborn might own. 
After placing a, a few calls, Robbie's located just such a place along the Hudson River when at that moment, J. Jonah Jameson bursts in. With all that's been going on, Spider-Man's got absolutely no time for Jameson or his bullshit, and as the publisher begins his usual ranting, Spider-Man webs Jonah's mouth shut before he can piss him off even more. Then he's out the window and on his way to pay a visit to the headquarters of the Green Goblin. At the deserted warehouse belonging to Norman Osborn, the psychotic Green Goblin's been holed up and spending his time working on his weaponry and preparing for his final showdown with Spider-Man. As night approaches, he can sense that his enemy is going to be arriving soon. When he hears the sounds of activity outside, he plans a surprise attack by flying out the rear exit and then attacking Spider-Man from the side. As he zooms around the warehouse, he finds that this is exactly what Spider-Man uh, had anticipated, and because he, at that moment, gets kicked right off his own glider by Spider-Man. As Spider-Man leaps onto the glider and stomps it to the ground, he's shocked to find the goblin bitterly complaining that he's ruined his jet flyer, considering the fact that, huh, you know, this is the same guy that just a few moments ago killed Gwen fucking Stacy. Spider-Man attacks the goblin with blind fury and starts just beating the piss out of him and never even trying to hold back until he gradually comes back to his senses and, realizing, and realizes that he's actually very close now to killing somebody. And whatever else Spider-Man might be, he's no murderer. Not even now. Spider-Man realizes that Goblin has to live and be judged according to the law even if it means the end of Spider-Man and the bargain. Barely conscious, the Green Goblin manages to summon just enough energy to call his remote-controlled bat, flighter, uh, bat glider over in a last-ditch effort to kill Spider-Man. The twisted bat head serves as a deadly, razor-sharp spear that he directs right into Spider-Man's back. Or tries to, anyway, but Spider-Man dodges at the last minute with an assist from his Spider-Sense, which causes the Jet Flyer to impale the Goblin instead, pinning him against the wall. The Green Goblin's dead, killed by his own cowardly choice of attack, but Peter realizes there's absolutely no satisfaction in the Goblin's death. Turning the Goblin into worm food isn't going to somehow bring uh, Gwen Stacy back to life. It's all just pointless now. So as he comes to terms with the passing of both his girlfriend and his deadliest archenemy, an unknown stranger sneaks around in the shadows, a witness to all of this. Epilogue. Peter returns home where Mary Jane's been waiting for him. Overwhelmed with grief, he lashes out at her for giving her condolences. Mary Jane's first thought is to leave after Peter's vicious remarks, but she realizes that he's just reacting out of pain and anger. But more than ever, Peter needs a friend. So Mary Jane steps back inside the apartment, closes the door, and comforts Peter. The end. So, what did I think? You know, it's funny. This story's been riffed on so many times now that it kind of felt like I'd already read this issue before even though I really hadn't. This issue picks up pretty much where the last one left off. I mean, we get a bit more fighting, but obviously the real drama of this story comes from Peter beginning to cope with the death of Gwen Stacy. And page six has this really powerful moment where Peter remembers how he and Gwen met, how they eventually got together, and how ultimately they fell in love. Now, a lot of people have said that, in retrospect, the, uh, the uh, death of Gwen Stacy marked the end of the Silver Age. I'm not sure if I care to get into that, but what I will say is there's a sophistication and maturity to this story that was kind of foreign to Spider-Man stories up to now. Conway handles Peter's grief, I think, pretty effectively. I mean, it doesn't get too out of hand, but at the same time, Gwen's death hardly gets swept under the rug either. 
it's a pretty good balance that Conway strikes between the fast-paced action, the slower-paced drama, and just the depth of emotion behind the story. So, I guess the most obvious question is, why Gwen had to die? And I think the answer to that is actually pretty simple. The next logical step for Gwen and Peter to take really would have been to get married and settle down. Now, the powers that were at Marvel did a great job of positioning Gwen as a love interest for Peter. Maybe too good a job, actually, because she and Peter were so good together that I think it would have been hard to convince readers that Gwen and Peter weren't going to end up together. It wasn't just organic to the story, it was inevitable for the characters. And had this been the 80s or the 90s, that would, have, that would not have been a big problem at all. But this was the early 70s when conventional wisdom said superheroes couldn't get married. Now, Spider-Man's entire existence is predicated on bucking conventional wisdom, but even he couldn't overcome the editorial mandate that superheroes must be single. And that's a problem when you introduce characters like Gwen who fit your lead character so perfectly that nobody will ever believe Peter falling for someone else as long as Gwen Stacy's around. Somebody's got to go. And people, it ain't going to be Peter. So Gwen Stacy had to die. So ultimately... I guess you could say that Gwen Stacy's a victim of being a female love interest in the 1970s. To go back into it, though, on uh, page 9, in the fourth panel, we see a close-up of Peter just before he lets himself into the Osborne townhouse, and you can see just how big a toll that Gwen's death has already taken on him and how serious he is about finding Norman and beating him into a bloody fucking pulp. It's just really dramatic storytelling because in the moment, you totally buy that Peter's going to end Norman once and for all. And it's just great stuff. Now from there, Peter then abandons Harry on pages 9 and 10. Now, Peter knows that he should stick around and help Harry however he can, but the pain is just too much for him right now. Peter has to go looking for Norman. And on the surface, that seems like some pretty cold shit, but there's another way of looking at it. Norman killed Gwen just to push Peter's buttons. It doesn't matter what happens later on in this story. For right now, Peter's angry enough to at least want to kill somebody. And what better way of striking back at Norman could there possibly be? I ask you. Peter could have, uh, he could have killed Harry with his bare hands, just to piss Norman off, tit for tat. Norman killed Gwen, whom Peter loved the most, so Peter could have killed Harry, whom Norman loves the most, just to even the score. Obviously, that didn't happen, though. So, yeah, Peter walked out on Harry when he needed help, but the other way of looking at it is that turning his back on Harry is Peter giving out a measure of mercy that Norman never gave to Gwen. So put that in your pipe and smoke it. Anyway, Spider-Man eventually tracks down the Goblin and uh, fights on. What's interesting, though, is that Peter gets absolutely zero satisfaction from Norman's death. It's what he said he wanted, but when Peter accidentally gets his wish, he sees absolutely no value in it. There's no meaning in Norman's death. Not for Peter. It's just a senseless waste, but it shouldn't be. Death comes for all of us. It should have, in Peter's mind, it should have some kind of mystical, transcendent meaning. If there's one thing death should never be, it's a random accident. Just any given Sunday. Peter's in a lot of pain, but even he realizes first that he has no business deciding who lives and who dies, but second, even Norman fucking Osborne deserves something better, something more, than accidentally falling on his own sword. It's all just meaningless bullshit to, to Peter now, 
So he goes home to find Mary Jane waiting for him. Now, Mary Jane's the fun-loving party girl who doesn't have time for drama, grief, or any of life's more serious bullshit. And Peter factually points that much out to her, but MJ decides to ignore all that, stick around, and comfort her friend as best she can. Now, a lot of people point to this as the moment where Peter and MJ started to become an item. And I can kind of see that. I mean, they bonded as people, as friends, as human beings over losing Gwen. And then, hey, one day, one thing kind of led to another. Now, I can't claim an encyclopedic knowledge of how Peter and Mary Jane's relationship evolved and developed over the, uh, over the years. So I trust people when they tell me that this is where it really started. Anyway, overall, these were all some pretty fun and pretty powerful comics. Uh, the emotions and the drama are all real. There's plenty of action to keep things interesting. And as to the characters, the characters win, lose, love, hate, succeed, fail, and other things, just like regular people. And so it's hard not to at least empathize with most of them. So, all in all, I can see why Spider-Man in the late 60s and early 70s is so well regarded. And yes, I intend to discuss more Spider-Man comics in the future. Now, I have no idea when, but the day's coming. It ain't gonna be next week, though. Nope. Next week, I'm going to be discussing a pair of Superman comics, Adventures of Superman number 440 and Superman number 19. What's so special about those comics, you ask? Not a damn thing, which is the entire reason I want to talk about them in the first place, but don't worry, it'll all make sense next week. So anyway, I think that's about it for now, so see y'all next week. I think that's just about the end of that. Trentus Magnus Punches Reality is a proud member of the Two True Freaks podcast network. You can find the home for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality at twotruefreaks.com, which is spelled T-W-O-T-R-U-E-F-R-E-A-K-S. You can also find it on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. There you can interact with your fellow listeners and also see notifications of new episodes when I put them up. You can friend me on Facebook by searching for Trentus Magnus, which is spelled T-R-E-N-T-U-S-S-M-A-G-N-U-S-S. You can email me and my parole officer at TrentusMagnus at gmail.com, which is spelled T-R-E-N-T-U-S. M-A-G-N-U-S Do you have a suggestion for a topic? Feel free to email me and I might consider thinking about the possibility of potentially discussing whatever you have in mind someday and that's a promise Did you know? You can sponsor any episode of this or any other of your favorite Two True Freaks affiliated shows That's right Simply click the PayPal link donate any amount at all, tell us which show you're choosing, and what message, if any, you'd like us to read on your behalf, and you will be an official sponsor of that show's very next episode, with your message read in the show's opener. It's that easy, and there's no minimum donation. Be a show sponsor today. If you shop at Amazon.com, please consider using the link at 2TrueFreaks.com to shop there. If you use this link to go to Amazon and then you shop, Two True Freaks gets a cut of what you buy. It doesn't cost you anything extra, and it really helps the freaks out. 
you get to shop as usual and help out the two true freaks at the same time. Do you have a podcast of your own? If so, why not record a promo for me to play on my show? It's quick, easy, and can help you spread the word about your show. I'm always looking for more promos to play. Keep it fairly short, and yours could be next. My promos can be found at this show's homepage for those interested. Just look for the promo section. The contents of this podcast are fictitious, hypothetical, and probably completely unnecessary. Any similarity to living persons or real-life events is purely coincidental and void where prohibited by law, some assembly required, batteries not included. Trentus Magnus Punches Reality is a Magnus Media Enterprises Limited production in association with Demonsacor of Milan, Italy. <laughs>